We're picking up where we left off. We're in Luke chapter three. And uh, it's cool when you see where stuff came from. My, I went to the Baptist school over the hill. My kids go to the Baptist school over in American Canyon. This one's going to be going back to the Baptist school that I went to. And the Baptists and the Episcopalians and the Nazarenes and all of them, you wonder, you know, where'd they come from, where'd they get the names from. And if you, it's funny because if you read the Bible, you find some of this stuff out. So we're going to be reading about John the Baptist, or better yet, the Baptist who was named John. This is where the Baptist, um, where they, what's where they get the name from. And um, it's pretty much kind of the beginning and end of it because John was kind of different, but in a real cool way. So that being said, um, let's pick up in chapter chapter three, verse one. It says, "Now, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, uh, Caesar Augustus was the, the was the emperor at the time that Jesus was born. This is his son. This is the heir to the throne. And Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, Herod, being tetrarch or governor of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and the region of Traconius or Trachonitis." and Licinius, the Tetrarch of Abilene. So those were three brothers, and they split up the land of Israel into three or four sections, and they were in charge of it. And we'll look at Herod, well, we just call him Herod Jr., and Herod Philip, his brother, because they have a pretty sordid story, but that's a whole bunch of chapters in the future. And the whole point of this, because remember, Luke was a historian. Luke wrote it so that... um, Theophilus could get the gospel story, a historical record of of Jesus. So this first chapter basically gives him a timeline. It was the 15th year. This is when this guy was the the emperor. This guy, his son, was the governor. This governor. This would all make sense to the readers back then. Oh, it was was this guy. It's kind of like, oh, it was the year 2023. uh, Gavin Newsom was the governor of California. God help us. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was our well, it's not our representative, but you know what I mean? If we laid it out, we're like, oh, he was the governor. This guy was the president. This was that. It would make sense to us the same way that it made sense to them. It says, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. Now, that's a no-no because it was supposed to be one high priest. And it was handed down the firstborn, and then he had a firstborn, and then he had a firstborn. And those were supposed to be high priests. You look in the Old Testament, you look at Exodus, you look in Leviticus. It says that this is how it was supposed to go. It's kind of like, well, the popes don't do it, but um, it was kind of like a king, but for priests. And they passed it down to their sons. So how in the world do you have two? Annas bought the office of the high priest from the Romans. And then he kind of shared it with his son, Caiaphas. It was wrong. These guys were corrupt because we're going to see that they railroad Jesus uh, at his trial, these guys were totally corrupt. They had no pri- uh, uh, business being the priest. They bought it. And it's kind of crazy because you look at chapter one, it says, this guy was the emperor, Tiberius Caesar, corrupt, evil. These guys thought they were God. And then you look at his three nasty sons and because they were nasty and they were corrupt. And then you look at Pontius Pilate. He at the best was wishy-washy, and weak because it says that he wanted to let Jesus go. He looked at Jesus and he says, this guy's not guilty. But he was so scared of the people, he gave Jesus over to be crucified. So you look at the political scene, it is trash. It is horrible. 
And then you look at the religious scene. You got a guy buying his office and kind of renting it out to his son. So the religious scene is horrible. Kind of sounds like our day and age. Because you look at politics, even though, well, I don't have a party. I'm a registered independent, which makes people leave me alone. But the people that I tend to vote for, they disappoint me. And the people that I don't vote for, I really can't stand them. So I look at the whole system and I, like they used to say in the old days, throw the bums out, throw them all out, throw them all out and start fresh. But our scene in our day and age, the politics are horrible. You look at the religious scene and I guess there's a church in Oklahoma. Uh, what is it? Oh, gosh. Well, they did something crazy for their Easter service. I think it's called Transformation Church. And uh, I was reading, I didn't want to look at it because it just sounded pretty bizarre. But he was doing some sacrilegious stuff for his church service just for the shock and awe factor. And then you got the usual cavalcade of the people that I love. You got uh, the dude down in Texas with the uh, greatest American hero perm. You got the word of faith people. You got the boring people. You got the positive confession people. You got all these people that are supposedly representing God that are horrible. So you look at our scene in America and it's the exact same. And I, I say this, God bless you. I lay this out because of the next sentence and it encourages me. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. So meanwhile, politics are horrible. The religion is horrible, but God has not stopped. God has not halted. Even though these guys are running everything into the ground, God is still speaking. So you look at our country, look at how messed up it is. God is not handcuffed. God has not stopped. God is still moving. God is still working. We just, it may not be some big move in our area, but God is still speaking. And little homes like this one and little churches elsewhere, God is still moving. And I like it because it says the word of the Lord, it came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. The wilderness is not like, you know, we think of uh, the sequoias when you're going up to Oregon, the wilderness. No, if you go up to Oregon, the, the west side is all green and lush. And we think, oh, that's the wilderness. That's not the wilderness. It's the eastern side of Oregon that's the wilderness. The eastern side of the, of the Cascades, because it's all desert. It's all death. If you go down to Arizona, uh, if you go through the Painted Desert, when it says the wilderness in the Bible, that's what it's talking about. It's not Grizzly Adams, but it's more like Kung Fu. And I know nobody in this room, you may be standing a chance at knowing what I'm talking about. No one else. Look it up. But just desert is what it what it was and what it is. And if you go out to the desert, there's nothing going on. There's no life, there's no community, there's no nothing. It's nothing but death and hardship. You can survive, but it's not fun. And a lot of people in the Bible, you look at Moses. Moses went out into the wilderness for 40 years just to have God train him, just to have God break him down and reduce him. You look at Elijah. He was out in the wilderness for three years because God was going to prepare him. And it's funny because when God... Apparently, Moses always had that inkling in his heart that he was going to redeem his people, that he was going to get the Jews out of Egypt. And when he was 40 years old, he saw uh, an Egyptian beating one of his one of his brothers, one of his fellow Jews. 
And he just went and killed the guy. And he thought he was going to lead the Jews in a, a big military revolt. And the Jews turned on him. The Jews snitched on him and said, hey, I saw what you did. And they were going to turn him in. So Moses took off to the desert for 40 years where God basically said, Moses, you're a nobody. As they say, what? Moses spent the first 40 years learning he was a somebody. Then God spent the next 40 years in the wilderness teaching him he was a nobody. And then that last 40 years when he was leading the Jews, God taught Moses that he could do something through a nobody who used to think he was somebody. And that's what the wilderness does. It breaks you down. It shows you that you're not as big and as bad as you thought you were. It's not fun, but it's always where God takes his people to prepare him for something greater. Because Elijah, at this point, before he went out to the desert, he went and he was already a stud because he went into the king and he says, hey, it's not going to rain for three years. And then, boom, he was gone. And there was a warrant out for him because he was he was not a patriot because he said it was going to rain. And it didn't rain. And he was just out there hanging out by the brook chair, getting food from crows, which is nasty because you, you know how birds feed their babies. They throw it up. They eat it and they throw it up. I used to think that he, they were bringing him little crackers and he, you know, because that's what it looks like in the little Sunday school drawings. And he's like, oh, he's just eating. No, the same way. And that's what he was eating. So three years of that, that junk would have gotten mighty old. Lord, how long do I have to do this? Lord, have I sinned? Lord, have I upset you somehow? And it was just sometimes it when you're in the wilderness being trained, it feels like you're being punished for something. And the thing is, you know what he was about to do? He was going to go up on Mount Carmel and call down fire. Lessons that he learned in the wilderness. And that's the wilderness, not the exact wilderness, but the same death and weariness. That's where John the Baptist was. And it's funny because he wasn't getting trained in the wilderness. He was getting, he was preaching in the wilderness. That was That was his church. And he went into all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. This does not mean that in order to be saved, you have to be baptized. And that's how you get your sins forgiven. What When it says a baptism for the remission of sins, when you baptize, well, when I baptize people, when you've been baptized, they put you down and then they bring you up. And baptism is an outward symbol of what you did when you got saved. The old man, the old life, the old you, who you were and stuff you used to do, it died underneath the water. And then when they bring you up, it's that brand new life that you have in Christ. So it's the death and the burial of the old man, and they bring you up, and it's a brand new start. It's a brand new man. It's a brand new woman. And that's why he says this baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, it's an outward symbol of what you've already done on the inside. And by the way, that's why they called him John the Baptist. They didn't call him a Baptist because he wore a suit and tie and was clean shaven and had a pompadour like the Fonz. They called him the Baptist because he baptized people. He, and you know, we was, if he was around today, we would say John the Baptizer. That's all it means. That's all the word Baptist means. And it says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So this, you know, and I, I, I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. 
this is the way every Christian should be. The same way John the Baptist was in relation to Jesus's first arrival, this is the way we Christians should be uh, about his second coming. John was getting the people ready for Jesus to show up the first time. We need to be getting people ready for Jesus to show up the second time so that when he comes, hopefully they're saved and they get caught up in the rapture. And if not, and they turn around like, where'd all the Christians go? They know because the stuff we've been telling them, oh, they, they're gone. Their houses are empty. Their churches are kind of empty because some of them, I think, are still going to be around. They're gone because of that rapture stuff they were talking about. And then hopefully they wake up because of the seeds that we planted. They're ready. They're ready in their own way for the Lord. And so it says, I'm making his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth. So John basically says, if it's a valley, I'm putting dirt in it. If it's a hill, I'm bulldozing it. I'm making it nice and flat so that everybody has an even chance to get to the Lord. If it's a crooked path, I'm taking a, a, a earth mover and I'm making the path straight. What is he saying? I want people to see the Lord clearly. I want people to see the Lord as easily as possible. Don't get it twisted. The Christian life, it is difficult. It is a life of self-denial. It is a full life. But to see the Lord should be simple as seeing the sun. And when there's Christians and churches and denominations that do the total opposite of John, because John says, I'm moving stuff out of the way so that you can see the Lord. And unfortunately, you got Christians putting stuff in the way so that people can't see the Lord. We need to be people saying, hey, this is who he is. Clearly, look at my life. Listen to what I'm talking about. Come to church. Listen to this podcast. Listen to this Bible study. Watch this guy on TV. Making it as easy as possible to meet the Lord. And that's what John was doing. And that's what we all get the privilege. It's not that tough because the days are so dark. So guess what? All it takes is just a little flicker to give off a whole lot of light. It said, you know, back in uh, World War II days, you know, once the fighting stopped, it was just, at least at nighttime, it was so dark that you could see a soldier strike a match a mile away. It was just that dark. I mean, a mile, if you want to get an idea of what a mile is, go over to Hans Park and walk it, and it'll show you how long a mile is. So imagine being that far away, and you just, you're looking straight away, and you can see just that little itty-bitty match head strike. And that's all we have to do. I mean, because our culture is upside down and backwards. So all you got to really do is be quasi-normal. And people are like, Hey, you're not a weirdo. Why aren't you a weirdo? Oh, because I, I know Jesus. And and the people are like, oh, okay. I mean, I was looking forward to work this in, but the days are dark. I work, I mean, you know the type of settings that I work in. So you expect what I do to be around a bunch of manly men. Not, this is something I would have expected to see at our, our former place of work. I'm there doing my thing working. And I thought, I was like, what does this lady want? I mean, she was a strange lady. She was not going to win any beauty contest, obviously. But I was like, and I looked, I'm like, 
And and my buddy, I was like, T, he's like, yeah, I see it. It was a guy. And he was wearing a dress. I mean, not a kilt, not culottes, not long shorts that full on dress. I mean, a skirt. I mean, it was a pretty skirt, but I mean, it was a skirt. And he was a dude. And then when I saw the Washington plates, I'm like, okay, I get it. And that kind of stuff, I mean, it's not, it's not cool to see the culture go that way. But when it gets that crazy, I mean, do we really have to try that hard to stand out? Because pretty, pretty soon we're going to be the ones that, hey, what's your problem? Jesus is my problem. And he's the best problem in the world you can have. And so the whole thing, the whole point is making it clear, making it easy, making it understandable for people. Why? And he even says it. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's why we do what we do. That's why we don't make it difficult. We make it clear so that people can see the salvation of God. Now, now this is part I like. I mean, I like it all because John reminds me of me. Or maybe I'll remind myself of John. Would you close the door? Because the invisible man is coming in. Then he said to the multitudes, because he's out in the desert. And I don't know who he started preaching to. Maybe he was just preaching to camels. I don't know. But eventually people said, there's a crazy guy out in the, in the you know, uh, out in the desert. And everybody's going to hear him talk. He's mad about something. He eats locusts and honey. So, I mean, so he eats locusts. So people probably thought he was nuts because you know how you catch locusts? You run after them and you jump on them. So right there, you're looking kind of weird. And you know how you got honey back in the day? You go up, you break open the beehive, and the bees are so happy, they give you little gifts called stingers. So this guy, his skin is probably leathery and jacked up from all those bee stings, and he's got little locust legs in his beard, and he's just a weird cat. And they're like, you know what? He's a weirdo, but he's preaching about the Lord. And I mean... Number one, he's weird, and that drove him, but he's actually talking about something. So all these people went out into the wilderness to hear multitudes. That's a lot of people. And they came out to him to be, to be baptized, and this is what he said. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Now, I did the welcomeage for a while at, at our old church, and it was good morning, welcome, we're glad to see you, and stuff like that. Not, hey, good morning, sinners. Who, who found out that hell was hot for a long time? Who wanted to escape it? I would have gotten so much trouble if I said something crazy like that, but that's what John was saying. Hey, you brood of snakes. Who told you that it was time to repent? And the funny thing, you know that it's revival when you don't have to fluff people's pillows and you can tell them what they are and they don't run off and get insulted because it doesn't say, well, we'll go somewhere else. They're like, yeah, you're right. We, I ripped this dude off the other day. I am a snake. You got me right on. So he goes on. He says, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So he says his whole message is repentance. Remember, repentance is I'm going this direction. I'm doing this thing. I'm living this way. And I realize it's wrong. So I turn around and I go back the other way. And he says, bear the fruits of repentance. The same way we got an orange tree on the backyard. We're reminded of it because we get oranges off of it. We got an apple tree out in the backyard. And if the squirrels don't eat all of them, 
We're reminded of it. That's an apple tree. So if you bear the fruits of repentance, guess what's going to be in your life? A bunch of change. The stuff you used to do, you're not going to do anymore. And it's going to be replaced with good stuff instead of the bad stuff. That's the whole thing about bearing the fruits of repentance. And he goes on to lay out how to do it. But they say, he says, don't think you're going to be able to rest in your pedigree. Don't say, hey, we're juice. So we're good. He says, don't think that. He says, because God can make a brand new people out of these rocks. And we as Americans, I mean, we, we've left it, but it used to be, of course, I'm going to heaven. I'm an American. I'm a Christian. I'm not a Jew. I'm not a Muslim. I'm an American. I must be going to heaven. And he said, it's got nothing to do with what you were born. Jesus is later going to say, it's got to do with you being born again or born from above. So he goes on, he says, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. And therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now compare this with what the Lord said. The Lord says, I am the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, I will prune it. And I used to think that meant he's going to come and start hacking off limb. And God's going to hurt me here, and I'm going to get fired from that. And God's going to punish me, and I'm going to get my life right, and then I'm going to bear fruit. If you look at the grapevines up valley or in the valley, if they are not kept, they'll, they'll just fall into the mud. And when it says, I'll prune them, it means they are hanging down in the dirt, in the mud. The Lord scoops it up, ties it to a rod to the fence to whatever it can so that it can grow the grapes the vines will grow better bigger cleaner grapes if they're off the ground so when it talks about pruning that's what the lord is talking about not lopping off but picking up and tending right here john says the axe is laid not to the branches not to the trunk to the roots in other words, I'm going to cut that tree down and it's going to be dead. And I'm going to pick it up and throw it into the fire. So it doesn't sound like he's talking about someone who knows the Lord. He says, these are people that, why is all their fruit in their life bad? Because there's nothing good in them. There is no God. There's no Jesus in them. And the Lord gives people year after year, space after space to repent. But eventually the root is laid to the branch, or excuse me, to the root. It's called when you die. And so all those people, when they die, that's the Lord laying the axe to the root. And if they haven't repented, it's good for nothing. It's a bad tree, and it's cast into the fire. It's cast into hell. And John doesn't say this so that people go to hell. He's saying this so that people don't go to hell. All those preachers that got a, a bad rap, oh, he's a hellfire and brimstone preacher. You know what those guys talk about hell? Because he doesn't want people to go there. You know why Jesus talked more about hell than anything else? Because he doesn't want people to go there. He didn't talk about heaven that much. He talked about hell a whole bunch. He says, this is as close as I want you to get. Heaven, oh yeah, heaven's nice. Why you talk that much about heaven, Lord? Because you're going to be there a kajillion years. You're going to have time to see how cool heaven is. But hell, I want you to get your fill just in the pages of scripture. And so that's why John is, you know, a lot of these, I mean, don't, don't get me twisted. A lot of these cats are jerks. And that's why they, they talk the way they do. And that's why they say what they say. But 
a lot, some, a chunk of these guys, they talk about hell because they don't want people to go there. It's warning people to not go there. And that's what John is doing. And it says, verse 10, so the people asked him, what shall we do then? And that's when you can tell when the Lord is connecting with the person. Because it's not just, oh, man, that was cool. That was a, a nice fact. That was pretty cool. But when a person says, well, you know, you said this, and I'm doing this, and according to you and the Bible, what I'm doing is wrong. So what should I do? That's when the Lord is connecting. That's when you can tell that the roots are digging down deep. When a person says, what should I do? Not, what should I do to be saved? Or, or but man, the Lord is, or yeah, maybe even, what should I do to be saved? But the Lord has saved me and he speaks to me. What should I do with what you just said? When I hear that, I mean, when I used to hear that, when I, I taught in school, when I taught the churches, man, that just, that got me juiced because you knew when people say, man, what what, should, what can I do with this? You know, it's it's hitting the mark. So the people, it's funny because it's multitude and now the people, the big group and you see it getting a little bit more narrow. So the people say, well, you're, you're talking about hell and judgment. So what should we do then? And he answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Was he talking about socialism? Everybody have even? James says, if you see a brother cold and hungry, don't say, hey, man, God bless you. Go off, be warm and, and well fed. He says, you give him some food. You give him a coat. That's what you do if you see someone in need. So John says, if you got two coats, and most people back in that day, they had one coat. So if a person had two coats, they wealthy as all get out. So he says, if you got more than you need, more than you know what to do with, he says, you share with that person that has nothing. That is not astronomical. It's like in our day and age, man, you got you got money for Burger King. You got money for McDonald's. The family down the street does not have food to eat. So maybe you can skip Burger King for a week or a month and buy them some groceries. That's That would be the equivalent. So what do we do with it? Answer, something. Some, a big thing, a little thing, something. He will show you. And then he goes on, and, he, um, and then the tax collectors, because I like it, because John is calling out people that are not, they're not church folks. Because... It says the multitude, then the people, and then he's kind of telling you who the people were in this crowd. It says, then the tax collectors, they also came to be baptized. So tax collectors were getting saved. Tax collectors were rip-off artists. They were usually rich. So they had a job to collect taxes from the people for the empire, and anything extra they took, they got to keep. So they ripped off people. They were crooks. I'm not saying like the IRS today, but... It's kind of a correlation, kind of a similarity. So the tax collectors came out and they said, teacher, what should we do? If we got any IRS agents, this listen up. And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed to you. So don't rip off people. Don't rip off people. Don't tax more because you can't. Don't tax more 
because they're rich and can't afford it. Tax what is necessary and then let the kids play and leave them alone. Like I said, they were notorious for ripping people off. And John says, yeah, you got to work. You're a tax collector, tax, collecting taxes, what you do. Keep your job. Don't rip people off. It's not a big thing. And then he goes on and says, likewise, the soldiers asked him saying, and what shall we do? So he said to them, these are so far groups that the people hated. But you know what this tells us? God loves people that other folks hate. God loves people that church people, even though we would never say we hate people, but people we wouldn't want to be bothered with, God loves them. And so the soldiers, they said, what should we do? And he said, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. The soldiers were like the cops back then. They were soldiers and cops. So for any people that are cops that are listening, the same thing. What If I'm a Christian and I love Jesus and, and I have a back, a badge and don't get it twisted. I back the badge. I bleed blue. I'm a blue blood. I love the police. But just like flight attendants and uh, what uh, airline pilots, and I've seen every vocation have good folks and I've seen every vocation have bad folks. And the cops are no different. But the fact that they're an authority figure, that makes them public enemy number one. So not saying that if a cop gets saved, he's got to quit his job. What should you do um, lock up the bad guys and don't mess with the good guy. Don't try to intimidate people. Don't don't take bribes because it happens. Don't try to intimidate people. Don't use your badge for a get out of free card. You be an upstanding. You be the best police officer that you can. And if you're like, what does that look like? Four words for you. The Andy Griffith show. Watch that. Chips. Watch that. That's I'm just kidding. But, you know, honestly, I mean, if you got to watch something. But yeah, because Andy never took a bribe. But do what is right. Do your job and don't be a jerk. I mean, a lot so much of what the Lord tells us gets broken down into that that phrase. Don't be a jerk. Don't push it farther than it needs to be. And then he goes on. This is now. As the people were in expectation and they all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, when it says they were in expectation, they were hoping that John was going to be the Messiah because he was he was fiery and he was charismatic and they thought he was going to make Israel great again. And they're like, because that they didn't think, oh, he's going to talk about Jesus. Oh, he's going to die, raise again, take people to heaven. Whoop de doo. They didn't they didn't care about that. They cared about He's going to come, slap the Romans around. We're going to move the temple back. To, everything is going to be back the way it used to be. We're going to be tax-free. It's going to be a good time. And later on, they found out it wasn't about this world. It was the next world. But all that being said, they were wondering if John was the Christ or not. And this is what he said. I indeed, I baptized with, uh, with water. And I like it because John says, man, I'm just dunking people in the water. I'm not anything. He says, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with, whole, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we'll talk about, well, the Holy Spirit baptism uh, a little bit later. We just don't have the time. 
But I do want to talk about the fire because the fire is a type of trials. It's a type of tribulation. Fire is a purifier. You put something in the fire, eventually, if it's anything that needs to, to be burned off or, or, or refined, the fire does it. And here he says, he's coming. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit with power, and he will baptize you with fire. In other words, the Lord will take us through some stuff. The Lord will put us through bad times. Why? To make us the people that he wants us to be. Sometimes you don't get... When I was in the academy, they didn't say, hey guys, let's let's get a box of donuts and watch chips. And that's how you're going to become officers. Nope, they're like, it's four o'clock, get up, ugly. Why are you looking at me, ugly? Get in that gym and start working out. So then we went in there and they yelled at us while we worked out. And then... What are you looking at? I mean, that seems like so much of it was just questions. What are you looking at me for? And then run this five miles. And then if they were in a real good mood, they just kept on running and running you and running you to the point where you didn't think you were ever going to stop. And then you went to class all day long until lunch. And then you went to a lunch and then you went and you marched and you drilled. And then you ran back to class and you learned some other stuff. And then you went and you drove the cars and you shot the gun. And meanwhile, you got yelled at. It's all in the Sacramento heat. It's all in three layers of clothing and 30 pounds of gear that you're wearing. You know why? Because life on the road, it is tough. And if you're going to do that job, you got to be tough. Representing God to a world that hates God is tough. And the Lord says, if you're going to do this job, I got to make you tough. And that baptism by fire, that's how I make you tough. I used to be worried about if people would like me. I used to be worried about if people were going to talk about me. And as the fire has gotten a little bit hotter, I find myself caring a little bit less about this, a little bit less about that, a little bit less with that. That's what the fire does. And pretty soon you get to that point, well, what if, what if they come one day and say, hey, the Christians, if you're a Christian, you're going to die. What if we get to that point? The Lord, because there are some people that they're American born and they become missionaries and they go to places where, yep, they kill them. And maybe, hopefully, none of us will ever face that. But we will face some pushback, some persecution. And the Lord says, I want you to be tough enough to face it. I want you to be tough enough to fight it, tough enough, tough enough to persevere underneath it, under the weight of it. And how do you do that? the fire, the tough times. Tough times make for tough people. And I think we're tender, but we need to be tough. But anyway, we also need to finish up this chunk. It says, verse 17, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the winnowing fan is like a fan. It's a big fan. And what they used to do back in the day is when they would separate the, the meat of the grain from the outer shell, the wheat and the chaff, they would throw it up in the air and the wind would come and it would blow off the husk and the real seed would fall to the ground and they could make bread out of it. But if they were in a spot where they, there was no wind, they had a winnowing fan and they would fan the seeds to separate the wheat, the husk, the outer shell that was good for nothing from the meat, the actual bread or the grain, or the whatever, and it was separated. 
One was good for nothing except for show. It looks like grain until you try to eat it. And then you're just chewing nothing. And the other is the real deal. And he says, the Lord will separate the real Christians who have some depth and some substance from the ones that look like Christians and they may sound like Christians, but they're not. And it's not my job to say, he's a phony Christian, she's a real Christian. I don't know. It says the Lord, he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff and the phony ones who are not ones at all, the unquenchable fire. That is the second mention of hell that John makes. Why? Because John was cranky that day and his wife got on his nerves. He wasn't married. He was saying, he was talking all this stuff about hell because as a teacher, uh, oh wait, it was me. As a teacher used to tell his students a long time ago, do not go to the place that rhymes with swell that's hot forever. It's just not worth it. And here John, he says, don't go. There's a place that rhymes with swell and it's hot a long time. Do not go there. He says, and with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. And exhortation is kind of like what I was talking about with the officers. Were you looking at dummy? Start running. That's an exhortation. It's not sweet. It's not encouraging. It motivates you. It may not feel good, but it produces some good fruit. So his messages were tough, but they needed to be tough. But Herod, the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for all the evil, excuse me, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all that he shut John up in prison. A lot of Christians can flap it. Oh, I'm against this. I'm against that. I'm for this. And I'm not saying I don't want to be tested to this, but if it, if, if it, if the rubber ever meets the road, I hope I can stand it. But it's one thing to be out yelling at whoever he was yelling at before the crowds came. It's one thing to be yelling at the crowds when they come. But man, when you go up to the king and say, you're wrong, you're an adulterer because you stole your husband, your, your brother's wife, you're wrong. That takes some guts. That takes a God that fears God and not people. We need that in the church. I mean, there's guys that I don't agree with all the stuff that they teach, but when they were telling us, hey, you Christians aren't essential, stay home and watch it from home. Don't go to church. Don't sing if you do go to church. There were some people that were like, hey, you know what? Lock me up. And they went to church anyway. There were some people, you don't like it? Sue me. And they got sued. There were some people, you don't like it? This one guy, I mean, he hates the group I come from, but he was cool because he was—he felt, man, I'm already in the hot seat. So he wrote the governor an open letter, which meant he wrote it to the governor's office, but he also put it on his website so everybody could see it. And it was cool because he went through, just like what John said, he went through and he says, Governor Newsom, you've done this, and this is trash. You've done this, and this is immoral. You've done this, and this is immoral. He talked about the homosexual stuff. He talked about the abortions. He talked about pushing dope on everybody. He talked about all this stuff that biblically our governor had done wrong. And then you know what he did at the bottom, at the end? He says, but I want you to know 
that everything you've done is no greater than any other sin no anyone else has ever committed. And Jesus Christ died for you so that you might know him and that you might be forgiven for your sins. That blew me away because, I mean, I joke about the governor and I talk about these people and this and that, but this guy, he had the guts to say, hey, I got a big building. I got a big ministry. You want to shut it down? Bring it on. And he says, oh, and by the way, you are doing wrong, but you don't have to keep doing wrong. You can turn it around. You can get saved. Guess what? That's the church's job. That's what we're here to do. We're not here to have a big group. We're not here to have big uh, property and all that. We're here to tell people the heart and the mind and the spirit of the Lord. And you know what? Sometimes people are not going to like that, but we do it anyway. And here, John, he did it. I mean, because some people was like, oh, they'll give it to the people they don't like. But when their buddies show up, they kind of clean up, clean up the gospel a little bit. John could care less. And you know what? It got him locked up. And then it got him beheaded. And you said, well, he, he, he lost. Did he? He won. Got to go to heaven early. His job was done. He was gone. And so John the Baptist, or the Baptist named John, I think we could lose, uh, not lose, but I think we could use a whole lot more Baptists like this guy. Because, I mean, it just fires me up just talking about this guy, just reading what he was doing. I mean, he was legit. But I said we had to finish it up, so we finished it. So let's pray. Lord, I ask and pray that you would give us the courage and the guts and the anointing of your spirit to be people like John, giving a tough message to tough people, giving salvation, or an opportunity of salvation to people, Lord. And John got locked up. John got in trouble for it, Lord. If it means that people aren't going to like us, if it means that we get canceled or whatever the stuff that's going around, Lord, I just pray that we shrug our shoulders, say, oh, well, and move on with it, Lord. But use us as your mouthpieces. Use us as your lights. Help us to, to be witnesses in the dark world, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you've enjoyed today's message, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is liveforjesusonline at gmail.com. That's L-I-V-E-F-O-R, jesusonline at gmail.com. Until next time, God bless you.